affordable housing and open space in New York City after COVID, what will be the impacts? I'm Jarrett Murphy from CityLimits.org. And I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. June 10th and into the third day of the great reopening here in New York City. Phase one of the reopening after the great shutdown for COVID-19. A lot of hope, uh, some worry, a great deal of uncertainty. Uh, can the economy rebound? Will there be a second wave of the coronavirus? And that uncertainty is filtering into the city's housing market in a lot of ways, uh, raising questions about demand, supply, and affordability. The ultimate question in New York City of who gets to afford what housing and where. We're going to have two housing experts on today to talk about that, the implications of COVID-19 for affordability writ large, and especially for Mayor de Blasio's affordable housing plan, controversial as it has been. And then we're going to talk about the city's great outdoors, uh, which have been the focus of a lot of attention since the pandemic struck a few weeks back. I had on uh, coaches and players from youth sports, which have been uh, largely banned from the city's parks, no permits for team sports until August 31st. And we talked about the implications there. We're going to pull back the camera and talk more about exactly what's going on in city's parks, beaches, playgrounds, all the issues that have been uh, bandied about since COVID-19 came back, uh, came at us. Uh, and so we'll speak with one of the leading uh, parks advocates about, about that at the second half of the show. And of course, as we enter this phase of reopening, uh, phase one of four, other parts of New York State have already moved on to subsequent phases. The phrase everyone is using is life getting back to normal. When is life getting back to normal? And of course, the reality is life is not going to go back to normal, uh, not for a long time, maybe not ever. Uh, we're going to have the lingering effects of this crisis in terms of ex economic impact, fiscal impact, uh, the people we've lost the potential cultural changes. Governor Cuomo has talked about reimagining education, perhaps changing, uh, if he can, the very nature of how we educate children. Uh, so things are going to be different. And obviously, normal doesn't necessarily mean good, uh, as we've been talking about and hearing about and protesting and praying over in the past couple of weeks. The state of uh, racial injustice in the city and the country is certainly not something we would go back to if we could. And there's been remarkable changes in the past 24 to 48 hours uh, in trying to re finally uh, re redress that and reset that balance. And so now I think we'll move to our first segment, which is talking about uh, housing after COVID-19. Uh, we are in the midst, as always, of a housing crisis in New York City. It's become very intense in recent years, nearly 60,000 people in homeless shelters, rents through the roof in a lot of neighborhoods, people struggling with this as a day-to-day -day, uh, worry or obsession, how they're going to afford the wet rent. And one of the first pieces of news that came down about the budget impacts of COVID-19 was a planned $2.3 billion cut, or I should say shift, in the budget for the city's affordable housing plan from this and next fiscal year into the distant future. We want to talk about the impact of that cut and the overall implications on affordable housing in the city of this pandemic and the current moment. And so to do that, we have two expert guests. One is Barika Williams, who is the executive director of the Association for Neighborhood and Housing Development. Barika, welcome to Max and Murphy. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. And we also have on the line uh, Jolie Milstein, who is the president and CEO of the New York State Association for Affordable Housing. Hi, welcome to WBAI. Thank you. Glad to be with you. So for those who uh, don't know and for whom ANHD and NYSAFA are not uh, household names, why don't you both talk a little bit about what your organizations are, what you do? Uh, Jolie, why don't you start first? 
Certainly, thank you. Uh, New York State's Association for Affordable Housing is a statewide industry association that has membership from including developers, contractors, lawyers, anyone who is part of the production and management of affordable housing in New York State uh, is invited to be a member. We have about 400 member firms tens of thousands of members, including all of the employees of those firms. And we, we have three things. We focus on advocacy for funding for housing, uh, networking opportunities across our membership, and really education to the general public about what affordable housing is and uh, why we need more of it and how to get it. And Barika, tell us about ANHD. Uh, so ANHD is the Association for Neighborhood and Housing Development, and we focus on bringing about affordable housing and equitable economic development uh, for all of New York City's uh, neighborhoods and communities. Uh, We've been around for more than 45 years and our members are local neighborhood-based nonprofits um, uh, that are rooted in neighborhood communities and serve their communities and their neighborhoods specifically. Um, And that includes everything from being developers and building managers to also um, the folks who are advocating for tenants' rights, um, assisting uh, folks with applications and applying to housing lotteries and providing housing counseling services and supporting small businesses. So, Barika, staying with you, uh, as I mentioned in the in the lead up, we are looking at a proposed $2.3 billion cut to the city's capital budget on housing over this and next fiscal year. That's a big number. What does that mean to you? What do you think the impact of that will be? So we've uh, we've done a, a series of analysis um, to look at what that means and the profound impact that that would have. So what we're looking at is potentially the loss of uh, 20,000 affordable housing units coming online in the coming years. So that's 5,000 new construction units and 15,000 units preserved. Um, We're talking about a lot of dilapidated infrastructure work that would be delayed. And then um, uh, a key piece of this is also the sort of connections to um, the industry around the creation and preservation of affordable housing uh, that would impact and have a ripple effect on on jobs uh, in this moment when so many people are unemployed or underemployed. Julie, does it look any different to you? No, in fact, just building on what Barika has said, we have over the last 10 years updated our economic analysis of the job creation and the economic activity that's associated with the development and management of affordable housing. And we're looking at, well, for every 100 units of affordable housing, there are 175 construction jobs created and 20 permanent jobs on the site. And a lot of economic activity is generated in those neighborhoods uh, 9.6 million during construction, 1.3 million uh, thereafter, and just generally the economic activity, the jobs created, the, the taxes that get paid, is a, it's a substantial part of the New York's uh, economy, affordable housing. So over the years, affordable housing has helped bring uh, the New York City economy out of recession, and we'd like to see that happen here as well. There's a lot at I- stake. I guess the devil's advocate come back, Julie, would be, you know, does the city have a choice? It's facing a budget crisis. And and obviously all government spending creates some kind of economic activity. If they have to cut something, uh, you know, why not cut this uh, this this major expense? Uh, Does the city have another option? 
Well, I think they do have other options. You know, there are a lot of places where you can cut services, but you're almost, uh, you know, spending the seed corn here when you stop the production of affordable housing because especially as we see during this pandemic, people's homes are critical not only to their mental health but their physical well-being. And if you stop production even for a couple of years, you lose more than two years. It takes a long time to build back up. The other important thing to note is by borrowing for this capital need, you're stretching out the repayment over the tens of years. And so the hit to the, to the budget is minimal for any single year. If you keep doing that year over year, if there isn't a recovery, then you could get yourself into more trouble. But the idea that you would borrow for this construction funding is probably the best way forward so that you're not taking the hit all in one year like you would on an operating budget. Really, a capital budget is borrowed against the, the city's uh, financial rating and uh, would extend over 15 years, say. So you wouldn't right, and just to clarify, because it has come up in discussions about the city's budget crisis, there's a proposal to borrow uh, anew, but that borrowing is for operation spending. The borrowing for capital expenditures is a time-honored tradition, and the city has a very high uh, bond rating um, on that debt that it that it floats to to support the building of infrastructure and other stuff. Uh, Barika, this is obviously uh, a major concern. The city council uh, issued a white paper last week, etching out some of the same arguments you've made about the impact on housing and on jobs of this. What are you hearing about negotiations? Is this an area where the council might have some ability to push back and, and win a concession from the mayor to restore the money? Uh, I think we hope so. I mean, I think what we've, what we've seen from uh, our side is really an unprecedented and unusual uh, unified voice in opposition to these cuts. Um, from uh, the high end of industry, who normally are focused mainly on luxury development, um, all the way to our tenants' rights advocates, really unified, um, collectively saying and opposing together that this is not the appropriate way. This is not the way to to cut um, uh, funds. And to what Jolie was talking about, this isn't. We're not saving money um, by by because this isn't operating expense. This isn't. We're not cutting the operating budget. So to do this is really about a policy decision and not about a budget savings decision. And I think that that is where there is uniform um, concern that what what the administration is doing right now is is making the policy decision to, to step away from their housing commitment um, in a way that's going to adversely impact uh, many of the communities that were hardest hit by COVID and just not something that we as a city can afford to do when we were already in a housing crisis. And, can I also uh, just amplify yeah, the, please, go oh, ahead. Sorry. I just no, want to ahead. also amplify on the job side. On affordable housing construction sites, many, many of the construction workers are from the neighborhood and people of color. So we, we really think that borrowing to, much like the country did in the WPA, borrowing money for these uh, nuts and bolts physical infrastructure needs, in this case housing, is very good and proven to be successful public policy because it puts people to work addressing an emergency housing crisis. So I think we have a lot of good talking points about why they should reverse themselves on this cut. Are they uh, union jobs typically, or are they paid prevailing wages? Um, it's a mix. Some of the projects uh, are prevailing wage. Uh, many are not. 
but the ones that are not have a typically much higher uh, incident of local hiring. So what, uh, what you trade off in union jobs, you actually are able to put people to work in the communities and getting job training and skills through things like our Building Skills Program that allows them to continue to be employed after that particular project is done and move on to the next one. So it's really building a skill base within the community to hire uh, for affordable housing. Barika, we're talking about city money. I wonder, is there any hope for other funds to come in that the, the federal government or I guess less likely the state might chip in if the city really feels unable to make this commitment? Uh, so I think we're we're really um, looking at this as separate and apart from uh, the federal money that might come in and the, and potentially state money. Um, that money and that conversation has really been focused around uh, rent relief and mortgage relief um, and support for those who were impacted, lost employment, lost income during COVID and are continuing to maybe in a continued situation where they're not um, able to pay their rent or their housing costs. And we believe that really should be the focus of those funds. Um, but this money is the city's capital money. This is within the city's control. This is, does not need to and should not be tied to those conversations. Again, this is, uh, um, for our assessment, really a policy decision that the, the mayor and his administration are making um, and not a, a question of cutting a budget to save money um, in light of COVID. So there are other like mechanisms... Go ahead. Yes, please. Sorry. I just also want to add that on the federal piece, the city dollars are leveraging federal tax credits, right? So we're already in partnership with the federal government. And one thing Barika and I and a lot of advocates are working towards is expanding the federal credit program that matches the money that the cities and states are putting in. So not only is it a good idea because of all the things we've mentioned to restore these cuts, but that capital is being leveraged both by state tax credits in some cases, but most importantly by the biggest affordable housing funding we have, which is the federal tax, low-income housing tax credit program. So these projects are getting already leveraging enormous federal resources to leave those on the table would just be tragic. That's exactly where I wanted to go, actually, which is when you think about the overall economy, what do you suspect the state of the tax credit market is going to be? I mean, as as a resource for city housing, obviously, it's critical. Uh, do we think that is going to be more or less a player in the months ahead, given the overall uh, pressures on the national economy? Well, it's interesting you ask. I just got off a call with a number of the syndicator uh, com companies that are syndicators in this tax credit market just before this call to ask that very question. And what I heard was, at least in New York, that the market is still there. It's taking longer because there are more considerations for evaluating each project. But as long as we have CRA obligations, Community Reinvestment Act, federal uh, obligations for banks to invest in communities where they lend, and other obligations of banks uh, around their lending, we are still seeing, as recently as an hour ago, that there is interest in putting um, money uh, into equity into these projects, in, at least in New York City. We didn't have the widespread conversation. I've heard there's some softness, uh, both with 
new new developers to the market where uh, they don't have a track record or in rural places where it's an unknown investment to these banks but in new york city we're hearing there is still investor interest and while it takes longer perhaps to get a letter of interest or a, a financing commitment uh, those commitments are still being made Barika, when we we've been talking about housing that would be built in the future, but stuff that was already shovels in the ground or in the theoretical pipeline being planned, do we feel like the COVID crisis has slowed down the creation of housing? I mean, obviously, affordable housing was an essential industry, but uh, are we moving at the same pace we would have been without COVID? Uh, I mean, I would say definitely not. We're definitely not moving at the same pace. Uh, there were a number of sites that, uh, for various different reasons, needed to slow down, um, uh, where they needed to um, temporarily pause uh, construction work um, for a variety of reasons. I mean, we've got projects where you want to make sure uh, residents who are living in buildings are safe um, and can remain healthy. Uh, residents in surrounding buildings can remain self- safe and healthy. And um, and our developers and um, building managers and contractors are very much want to ensure and work towards the safety of their employees and their staff as well. So there's a number of different considerations. Um, I know our members and, and our um, developer orgs have been in ongoing conversations with the city to identify which projects um, financing is in place and in a, um, in a position to continue to go forward. Um, but there are some concerns about some of the buildings that weren't quite shovel in the ground, but were, let's say, next in the queue um, and what their positioning looks like, especially um, in light of the city walking back its capital commitment to this affordable housing pipeline. In, for either of you, when you talk to members or hear from members that obviously uh, some people build affordable housing, others then manage it, and they have to manage the balance sheet like any other business. And obviously what we've heard from many landlords is that the non-payment of rent is a problem for them and could put them in, into some, some trouble. Uh, affordable housing depends on rent payments, too, in one form or another. Are we hearing about problems there, uh, people not paying the rent and that putting uh, the developments that already exist into any kind of uh, peril? Uh, we, uh, so I can we, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, we, uh, we definitely know that there are, um, there have been and will continue to be people who cannot pay rent in uh, our affordable housing buildings. Those are about what for statewide, it's something like 40% of the people 70% of the people who lost their income made $40,000 or less. Those are uh, the residents in New York City who are most likely to be in affordable housing units. So we fully expect um, and know and have seen the data that our affordable housing units um, are going to be harder hit by a loss of income um, and by... Uh, loss of retail jobs in the hotel industry and right so so we understand that um, and it's really I, I think this is this is where the federal piece comes in this is where we are um, all of us in very active conversations um, pushing the federal government um, to provide rent relief to New York City this is this is a, a price tag uh, that is really incredibly difficult for the city to pick up on its own we're talking about uh, months of rent in a city that, that has more than 2 million renters in total. 
I think we're all worried that when the uh, payment from the federal government stops in July, uh, people have been using that unemployment money and uh, COVID-affected job loss money uh, to pay the rent. And when that money goes away and the jobs don't return, I think that's what we're all afraid of, what we'll start seeing um, at the end of July into August. There's been some drop-off. I think that's been our experience as well, but not, signi- not as significant as we had feared. But the thought is people are continuing to pay out of their uh, unemployment money. You know, what we've seen in some of the coverage of the impact of this crisis on the city is all these illustrations, these dramatic maps in the New York Times of people leaving New York City, going to distant uh, counties and, and other states, and some of those people aren't coming back. And so I wonder, what do you think the impact, and I'll start with you, Julie, but I want to hear Barika on this too. What do you think the overall impact on the housing market of COVID-19 will be? Do you think we'll see uh, less demand for space? Will that have some silver lining effect of taking some of the pressure off of rents? What do you think the bigger picture looks like? Well, I think in in the short to intermediate term, yes. And we're seeing vacancy rates go up in market rate units. Certainly the highest end is having the most uh, dramatic impact. Uh, People that could leave did leave. But when we're talking about affordable housing, I don't think there'll be any, uh, it's not going to be a trickle-up effect. I don't think that there's going to be a significant number of more apartments available to people who qualify for affordable housing. We are so desperately behind in in providing units that I don't see a softening in the affordable housing market, just in the market rate. Barika, what do you think? Right. I I would say very similarly. Um, I think we've seen pretty consistent reports of um, those who are higher income and, and who are in the market rate luxury units um, being those who either temporarily vacation or just sort of get away from the crisis, um, moving or, or temporarily locating to uh, the surrounding counties and to other states. Um, but the for our low income and, and moderate income populations, that wasn't an option. So uh, those are the folks who have, have sort of more so been hunkered down throughout this crisis um, here in the city, Um, many of whom are in our our epicenter areas, uh, like um, uh, in Elmhurst, Queens, or in um, uh, East New York and Brownsville, and in parts of the Bronx. Um, And they are not going to be potentially moving and locating into luxury units. If anything, it's going to be more of a crunch for more affordable units as we see people um, continue to, to not uh, get, not regain jobs, right? If, if the employment um, market doesn't come back um, for a number of months, then, then folks are going to continue to be uh, severely rent burdened and, and be looking for uh, lower rent units, not, not a trickle up. And homeless. Right, and, of course. Yeah, and, and, that, I, and I think that's that very much ties back into the overarching conversation of when we had a, a massive homelessness crisis before this and an affordable housing crisis before this to then remove investment, to take funds out of affordable housing when in all scenarios sort of thinking about the, the ripple effects of COVID for our low and moderate income New Yorkers, we expect to see homelessness rise. It just, it's really, it's a very um, baffling and, and tough decision for, for us to understand what the administration was, was thinking about. 
And so a last question. We have a, a couple minutes left. De Blasio's housing plan, uh, we're about we're a little less than halfway through to his 300,000 unit goal. And this cut would would put some of that work off for, for years if, if you were to go by the mayor's current capital plan. But of course, that plan has been controversial. People have said it targeted the wrong neighborhoods, that it targeted the wrong income groups, that it was too focused on a unit count as opposed to more qualitative changes in the housing environment in the city. So I guess the question is, if we're talking about the impact of this cut on the plan, what's the impact of the plan been? Overall, Barika, do you think it has been a positive effect? It has had a positive effect on affordability in the city? Uh, I mean, I, I think you. we would say if you look at pretty much all of the data metrics when it comes to rent burden, when it comes to overcrowding, that we haven't made a dent in the affordability crisis in, in New York City. Um, it's, I think one of the things that ANHD, our members and our groups have really focused on is that it's not enough to increase the number of affordable housing units like we want that investment we need it but we really need to be much more intentional about designing an affordable housing program and plan to impact the people who need housing the most and who have the potential to really start to relieve the overall uh, pressure of the market. Um, so, you know, we, we were their their plan has been controversial and it has mainly focused on um, communities of color and upzoning and um, and not provided the level of deep affordability. And, oh, and Julie, like what their communities. Julie, in the 30 seconds we have left, what's what's your take on the mayor's plan? I think we're better off than we would have been without it. Would we improve upon it? Yes. And you'll be seeing a lot of controversial comments coming out about what the next mayor is going to be uh, having to face and some suggestions from uh, all the advocates about how to do a better job. But I think on balance, we're, we're better than we would have been without it. Is it enough? Uh, it's certainly not, but we're here to try and make it a better, better solution. We're absolutely right. 2021, this will be one of the major topics as it was uh, eight years ago and, and probably will be for, for quite some time. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. We've been speaking with Julie Milstein, the president and CEO of the New York State Association for Affordable Housing, and Marika Williams, the executive director of the Association for Neighborhood and Housing Development. Thank you both very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for having us.